All right, we are continuing our study of the life of David. Um, and uh, last week, I want, I want to do something before I get into this week's lesson. Uh, last week, I spoke to you about Mephibosheth. Uh, and many of you had not really heard that discussion before. And I wanted to read to you this section of scripture that deals with that because it's so profound and it speaks so much to the heart of David and it represents a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. As you know, David is often referred to uh, by theologians as a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, uh, effectively a, a precursor. So if you would turn to 2 Samuel chapter 9. David is now king, Saul is dead, Jonathan is dead, uh, and so David is now ensconced in the royal palace. And so beginning with verse 1, 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1, David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before David, and the king said to him, are you Ziba, your servant, he replied. The king asked, is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, he is at the house of Maker, son of Amel, in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Maker, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant? that you should notice a dead dog like me. Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land from him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table, and he was crippled in both feet. Quite a story. Quite a story. It certainly shows you the heart of David, who made a promise, a covenant with Jonathan. Um, and Jonathan had asked him, will you take care of our, my family? And David promised him he would. And after all the evil poured out on David, and you, we're going to continue to study this, and all the, the horrible things that he went through, he honored that promise. And you see the grace of God through David. David is, in, is demonstrating here how God shows his grace to you. And here's uh, the analogy for you. Mephibosheth was crippled. You're crippled. God looks at us as crippled, as being lost, 
as being dead in our sin. And yet through the grace of God, just as David is demonstrating the grace of God through, to Mephibosheth, God also shows his grace to you in your crippled state. He looks at you and says, you're lost. You have no, no uh, really valid reason to be able to think that you can go on, that you can get to heaven on your own. You're lost in your sin. You're dead men walking. And yet God dispenses his grace through Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen on that? Amen. I mean, this is a big deal. This is a big deal. Uh, and that's why I wanted to start this lesson today, reading those sections relating to Mephibosheth. Because it shows you how God dispenses his grace. And one of the reasons why David was so blessed by God, even though he made innumerable dumb decisions, and we're going to talk about some of those dumb decisions today, uh, even though he did that, he repented. And he loved God. And he had a heart for God. And when he repented uh, in a brokenness of spirit, God poured his grace into David, and you see it in his life. And so this is an example of that. And so I hope that each of you, in some way, as, as you're, you're walking your Christian life, going through the trials that you each face, I'm hoping that you'll remember this story, how God reached out to a cripple through David, uh, and that you will likewise do that, that you'll be mindful of that, even as, as you go through the vicissitudes of life here in this world that there will be things that happen to you, some dark periods of time. You need to show forgiveness. You need to show grace. You need to show that there's a difference between us and people in the world. That's what separates us from people in the world. It's the grace of Jesus Christ. And so this is a powerful story. And so I, I, I hope that this resonates with you as we continue to study our lesson for this week, uh, which is found in 1 Samuel chapter 21. So turn there, and so, uh, here now as we continue this study of the life of David, and this is going to be a lesson in which we're going to see the emphasis of the grace of God on the life of David, irrespective of dumb decisions. Uh, if I wrote this, the, the uh, heading to the, this particular chapter in the Bible, I would label it, David makes dumb decisions. This is one dumb decision after another. Amazing. But what you see is he's under stress. He's being pursued by Saul. His life is in danger. Uh, and so as he's, as he's going through these things, you see how we are subject to making dumb decisions. Um, and God doesn't want us to make dumb decisions. God wants us to make wise decisions. But God understands that as human beings, and certainly in our walk with him, as we are immature and becoming more mature, that in our immaturity, spiritually, we will make dumb decisions. God knows I've made enough for a lifetime, all right? And, and I'm sure that if we each got up here and swapped our dumb decisions, uh, each one would top the next, all right? I mean, but you know what the great news is? Here we are on a Monday morning here, worshiping and studying God. Meaning what? That regardless of all our dumb decisions, we have come to understand that we need the grace of God in our lives. And this is where we are because of that. Uh, and so we're going to talk about these dumb decisions. We're going to talk about the implications of them. And then we're going to talk about what a great God we have that he can forgive us in these dumb decisions. So 
Let's take a look at, at uh, chapter 21. We're going to read the first uh, eight or nine verses, and then I'm going to comment on them. And so David went to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? Now, by the way, there's a very good reason for that, because if you were with the king, you never traveled alone. You traveled with an entourage. So it was very unusual, very unusual that uh, uh, someone from the royal palace would be traveling alone. You wouldn't see that. David answered Ahimelech the priest, The king charged me with a certain matter and said to me, No one is to know anything about your mission and your instructions. As for my men, I have told them to meet me at a certain place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. Okay, so right up front, he's lying. He's lying. The king has sent me on a secret mission. I'm here on a secret mission. Uh, and obviously, he's under great stress. Uh, but you could see that in his humanity, he is pretty facile. One of the things you notice about David is he's pretty gifted in terms of the natural arts. He can speak well. And he thinks quickly on his feet. And so what does it mean? No problem. I can handle this. I'm here on a secret mission for the king. Nobody is supposed to know about it. Well, okay. I can buy that. Uh, I can buy that. Well, the question becomes, well, why, why was he going uh, to the high priest? Well, most likely he was going to the high priest because he was looking for direction in his life as well as food and weapons. And so you're going to hear this story as it evolves, that he's going to speak, ask for both food, uh, ask for weapons, and most likely direction in his life as to what he should do. Um, and the reason he would go to the high priest for that is because the high priest had a garment that he wore called an ephod, E-P-H-O-D. Uh, and it was a priestly garment like a vest, uh, and as a vest, it had pockets. Uh, and in the pockets, they would carry stones uh, called a urus and a thumim. And it would be a white stone and a black stone or a different colored stone. And the priests would wear these and they would go in to the holy, highest of holy places with these garments on. And the idea was, based on what God had directed them to wear, that they would be able to use these stones, uh, and when, when they were asked questions about what people should do in terms of their lives or decisions, they would get a spiritual answer. Now, we don't know too much about this, all right? And after a while, it was phased out. But interestingly enough, you can see where this came about. Look at Exodus chapter 28. I just want to give you a historical basis for this. Exodus 28. Keep your finger in 1 Samuel. Exodus 28, beginning at verse 29. And this is where God is now instructing the high priests and Aaron what they need to wear. Whenever Aaron enters the holy place, he will bear the names of the sons of Israel over his heart on the breastpiece of decision as a continuing memorial before the Lord. Also put the Urim and the Thummim in the breastpiece so that they may be over Aaron's heart whenever he enters the presence of the Lord. Thus, Aaron will always bear the means of making decisions 
for the Israelites over his heart before the Lord. And I'm going to continue on for a couple verses. Make the, the robe of the ephod entirely of blue cloth with an opening for the head in its center. There shall be a woven edge like a collar around the opening so that it will not tear. Make pomegranates of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn around the hem of the robe with gold bells between them. The gold bells and the pomegranates are to alternate around the hem of the robe. Aaron must wear it when he ministers. The sounds of the bells will be heard when he enters the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out so that he will not die. There it is. That's God. That's the law. You want the law? Here's the law. You follow the law, and if you don't follow the law, you die. If you don't properly uh, adorn yourself, if you don't properly sacrifice when you go into the Holy of Holies, you have those bells that we put on the bottom of your robe. We'll listen for that. If all of a sudden we don't hear those bells, we're going to tie a rope around you because that means you were struck dead and we'll drag your corpse out. They didn't fool around in those days. They didn't fool around. I heard a couple of Jewish comedians talking once about the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And they said, somehow it seems like there's a different God in the New Testament than the Old Testament. And uh, they even referred to the way they would get gifts at Hanukkah, that they basically got school supplies at Hanukkah when we'd get like a pony, you know? And, and it was a whole, a whole different thing. And yes, there is a whole different thing. It's called the grace of Jesus Christ. You understand? Because there's no one who could ever live up to this. No one who could ever live up to the law. And so here it is uh, with the Urus and Thuman and, and, and all the priestly robes. And so here's David going to seek out the high priest um, and seeking it out and, and to get an answer and also now to get fed and to get weapons. And this is where the story really gets interesting. Verse 5, now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. But the priest answered David, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there is some consecrated bread here, provided the men have kept themselves from women. Now, what that is is show bread. That was bread meant to be used in the Holy of Holies in the ritual sacrifices, that bread was not meant to be consumed by the public. That was bread used for ritual purposes. And now David wants that bread. He wants to eat that bread. And so now you're going to see the juxtaposition of the law versus life. The law versus life. Do we blindly follow the law when life is concerned? Uh, and we're going to have a dialogue on this. Uh, and, and the priest said, provided the men have kept themselves from women. And David answers, indeed, women have been kept from us as usual. Whenever I set out, the men's things are holy, even on mission that are not holy. How much more so today? So the priest gave him the consecrated bread, since there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from before the Lord, replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. And so here we know, here we have an interesting juxtaposition. Is it a sin? Have you violated God's law? Because the covenant, the promise was, this is showbread. This is not to be used for human cons uh, consumption. And yet David goes to the high priest, and the high priest 
uh, answers uh, and gives it to him. Now, there's very interesting commentary on this by Jesus. Turn to Matthew chapter 12. Verse 1, and this is, this is when Jesus is going to be attacked for healing people on the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders will, will conspire against Jesus, and this is really one of the reasons why he was uh, crucified, is because he routinely violated the Sabbath, because he believed that, that the work of God went on irrespective of the day. Healing went on, miracles went on, the word of God was propagated. It did nothing stopped to, uh, on the Sabbath for God's work, that God continued to do work. So follow along with me in Matthew 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And you know you weren't supposed to travel on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw that, they said, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. What was unlawful, the actual picking of the grains, and the walking. You weren't supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. Jesus answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent? I tell you that one greater than the, than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. There it is. One greater than the temple is before you. The law is now being completed in the body of Jesus Christ. The law was meant for you to bow your head and say, God, I can't do this. I can't follow the law. I keep breaking the law. I need a savior. And when you did that, the law did what it was supposed to do. The law didn't save you. The law was to point the way to a savior. And so you see here, Jesus making a point that what David did was right. Meaning what? If you are an innocent man, and in your innocent ways, walking in your innocent ways, you find yourself in a life-threatening situation that you need the food in order to live. It's appropriate that you use that food because you're innocent. You didn't cause this to happen. You're an innocent man, just like his disciples were innocent as they were walking with Jesus on the Sabbath. And so this is important to understand how God views the law. Our God is a merciful God. God looks at these situations, and he understands that, that often things are not black and white. And in the situation with David, that was certainly the case. Uh, it was not. And so David ate this bread, and it was not a sin. It was not a sin. Uh, what was inappropriate was that David didn't tell the truth, uh, but he lied. But, but the, the fact that he got the, the bread and was able to eat the bread uh, was not a sin. So let's continue on reading. And uh, verse 7, now one of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before the Lord. He was Doeg, the Edomite, Saul's chief head 
shepherd. Now, this is a bad dude. This is not a good man. And, and he will enter this story later and do some very bad things. But uh, Doeg the Edomite was the chief herdsman. And that was a very important position because the wealth of the king was primarily tied up in the herds and in the land. And so if you were the chief herdsman, you really were right there at the very top of the food chain in terms of power. You were a key guy. Uh, and what's interesting here is that Doeg was an Edomite. Now, the Edomites were always the enemy of God's people. Going back to when they came out of Egypt, the Edomites were, were like the Amalekites. They attacked the uh, Jewish people, and they became an enemy of God. I don't understand how a guy who would have been an Edomite would have risen to this position. We, the Bible doesn't tell us that. But clearly, uh, David knew right away this is a problem. This is a problem because this guy is going to go back to Saul, and he's going to tell Saul where I'm in hiding, and now I am in deep trouble, and I know Saul will come back, and this guy will, will surely uh, do me evil. And in fact, that's what's happened. You're going to see that that's what's happening as David recognizes. Uh, and so continuing on, verse 8, David asked Ahimelech, the high priest, don't you have a spear or sword here? I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon because the king's business was urgent. Well, we know that's a lie because he was fleeing for his life, all right? But he's, he's, he's telling a tall tale here. The priest, the priest replied, the sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, is here. It is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it. There is no sword here but that one. David said, there is none like it. Give it to me. Now, does it strike you? I mean, does it strike you as ironic that the very sword... Of, of Goliath, uh, who was the enemy of God's people, who David w was blessed and slayed, that that sword is now something that David's going to take and use? Does that strike you as, as unusual? Well, the thing is, is that when you're working within your own mindset and you're writing the plan of your life, no, I need a sword. There's a sword. But do you think God really wanted him to do that, to take the sword of Goliath? You think he wanted him to take that sword, which was used by someone that was blaspheming God, and, and make that his weapon? I, f I find that hard to believe. Uh, and it begins the downward spiral of David's life. Dumb decision after dumb decision after dumb decision. And this is one of those dumb decisions that you see this here. Uh, and so he takes the sword... And the tale continues. That day, David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. Now, what does this mean? Well, what it means is David has now moved into uh, the land of the Philistines. He has moved from Israel into the land of the Philistines uh, and, and, uh, in order to find protection. Now, before he does that, because he went to the high priest and got the high priest to give him supplies and give him food and give him a weapon, it will wind up be resulting in a tragic massacre of the entire area of the high priests. The high priests 
and all the lower priests and their families will be wiped out by Doeg under the direction of Saul. Why? Because you helped David. You see? You helped David, and now because you helped David, I'm going to punish you. I'm going to strike you dead, uh, and you're going to see this. Turn to, to chapter 22. Look at verse, uh, let's see, 18. Verse 17. Then the king ordered the guards at his side, turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because they too have sided with David. They knew he was fleeing, yet they did not tell me. But the king's officials were not willing to raise a hand to strike the priests of the Lord. The king then ordered Doeg, you turn and strike down the priests. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck them down. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. He also put to the sword Nob, the town of the priests, with its men and women, its children and infants, its cattle, donkeys, and sheep. All this because David went there and asked them to help and effectively uh, uh, misrepresented what he was doing. And you see what happens when we do our own thing. We do our own thing and we don't act within the confines of how God wants us to act. Now an entire village has been struck dead. Uh, and so uh, as, as David is coming to terms with this, he now decides he's got to leave Israel. And so these are new experiences for David. This, he hasn't seen this before. Uh, it's one thing to trust God when you're overcoming pressures, but it's another when the pressures do not relent quickly when the, pressure, the pressures are piling up, when one thing comes on top of another and you don't see the light of day, now are you still going to trust God? Or all of a sudden, are you going to relent and, and focus on your own abilities? And so God seeks to seek to see us if we can, can continue to trust him even through difficult trials. Will you stay consistent? Will you stay stable? Will you stay strong with God? Or will you fall off? And so in his panic, as he sees all of this coming and knowing that Doeg is going to go back to Saul, in his panic, David flees to Gath, a Philistine city. And he does this because he believes that Saul is a coward, afraid of war, and that as such, Saul would not go into the Philistine area. David, on the other hand, has made numerous uh, visits into the Philistine area and has killed many Philistines. And so he thought that he would not be recognized by his face. Now, come on. David, who are you talking to, man? You just killed their champion. They know who you are. You're there. You're one of the top warriors going in there on a regular basis. Uh, you know that, that the day that he was given the dowry, the right to marry Saul's daughter, he came back and killed 200 Philistines in order to get that dowry. So they, you know, this was a guy who, who clearly had a price on his head, and yet he decides to go there because he thinks he's going to find peace. He's going to find peace in the camp of the enemy of God's people. Have we ever done that? Don't answer. <laughs> going to find peace. Yeah, I'm going to hang around with those people that they don't know God, but they're good people. They're good people. You know, they have a good heart. They know me. 
instead of going back to, to the place where, you, where God wants you to go back, to be with his people, to get his wisdom. And so here's David compounding it again, going into Philistine area, going in there, fleeing to Gath, uh, uh, armed with Goliath's sword, armed with Goliath's sword, hoping to establish an alliance with the Philistines. Highly improbable, right? Highly improbable. Not going to happen. And so now we're going to see one of the darkest periods of David's life where he's starting to do some really strange things. I mean, really strange things. And so, continuing on, Verse 19, that day David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, isn't this David, the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of the king of Gath. Yeah, David, I think you should be. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Now, I know many of you have done some dumb things in your life. But I don't think any of you have done this bad, haven't gone this far. Can you imagine? Here he is now, in order to continue to perpetuate this tale, he decides to make himself look insane. And so now he's foaming at the mouth, the saliva's dripping down his beard, uh, and he's scratching at the door. Uh, And this is the future king of Israel? This is God's man? This is the anointed? Do you see how we, we can take the gifts of God and put them beneath our feet? I mean, is this is how God wanted him to act? And yet here's the story, as incredible as this is, uh, as demeaning as it is, as out of the line of the will of God as it is, God still protected him because God loves us more than you can ever understand. You can't begin to understand the love of God in your life. And so even though you make these sojourns from time to time outside the will of God, It's when you come back and you have a broken heart. Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, forgive me. I don't know why I did it. And you're going to see that with David over and over again, that he does this, that God forgives. He elevates. He protects. And so here he is in this this, uh, Philistine city, right there in front of the Philistine king. And the king looks at this guy and said, this guy's no good to me. You brought me a nut. I don't, want, I don't want this guy. Get him out of my presence. You see how God protected him. Uh, and he, because he, he pretended to be insane. Achish said to his servants, look at this man. He is insane. Why bring him to me? I am, am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this guy in to carry on like this? I got, take this guy out. I don't want this guy in my house. I have enough madmen around me. I don't need to import them. And so what happens is David escapes. He escapes, even though he had made this incredibly bad decision uh, to, to look like a madman in front of the king. And what this story is about, this story is about the incredible mercy of God. Uh, and this story, the mercy of God permeates the life of David 
uh, throughout. And, and David will write about this, and we're going to study that now in Psalm 34, because we're going to see the heart of David as he speaks about the mercy of God. And I told you that this year, from time to time, I'm going to interweave a psalm that shows the heart of David related to the kind of story that we're going to talk about. And here's the thing, folks. Many people talk about God, uh, and, but don't really understand the heart of God. And there's so many people that believe that God has condemned them because of their failures. I'm telling you right now, when you read this story, God does not condemn you because of your failures. God understands that you're human. God understands that you're going to make dumb decisions. And yet the mercy of God, when you come to God and pour out your heart to God, the mercy of God is overwhelming as he forgives you and takes you away from these uh, dumb decisions and lifts you up. I want to make sure there's not a one of you today that leaves this place thinking that there's some aspect of your life that remains unforgiven. You are forgiven. Amen. Not only are you forgiven, forgiven, God has forgotten what you have done. That's even more so than forgiven. Because you know how we say forgiven, right? Well, I have forgiven you, but I haven't forgotten it. I mean, that was a classic New Jersey line, right? Oh, yeah. I've forgiven you, but I remember. I remember. And, and, and yet the God of our creation has said, not only do I forgive, but I have forgotten. I have forgotten that your sins, your misdeeds, your dumb decisions are as far removed from me as the east is from the west. And you want proof? You want proof? I give you David. And you know that with David, it, some, of the, some of the dumb decisions get, get so bad that it makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up. And you know that at one point, not only will, will he commit adultery, but it'll get so bad that he'll basically have the, the, wife of, the husband of Bathsheba sent to the front lines uh, so that he can be murdered, uh, and, and uh, he will be murdered. And so you see that, and you say, but what kind of a man is this? This is God's man? This is the guy who was in the lineage of Jesus Christ? Yes. Because God looked at his heart. God looked at his heart, and what he saw in that heart was a heart that begged for forgiveness, a heart that begged for mercy, and that's how God is. So if you turn with me to Psalm 34, we're going to see David speak about this period of time when he feigned insanity, when he did one dumb decision after the other. Uh, and, um, and to me, this is a psalm that deals with the forgiveness of God and the nature of salvation. Uh, and believers down the years, through the centuries, have loved this psalm because it so eloquently expresses the forgiveness of God, our creator, towards us. And so let's look at it in this site, beginning with verse 1. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. And so in those first verses, you see that David is speaking about the grandeur and glory of God who came to his aid and talking about the fact that I will bless him all the time. That's why God loved David, because he continually blessed him. 
He knew that he made mistakes, but he blessed him. He lifted him up. And so what does it say here? That the person who is in God can boast because God is with him. There's an assurance that we have that God is with us, that he will not abandon us. He will not walk away from us the way men might walk away from us when we make a dumb decision. God is with you till the end. He will not go away, but you need to ask him to intervene in your life, to give you mercy. And you see this uh, in, in, uh, in such a profound way. And all of this is a portend of the grace of Jesus Christ to come. This entire psalm, as the entire life of David is, is a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. And so as we read this verse, we see that the, the person who's being saved, the person who have, has come to God, is not merely content to enjoy the, uh, the redemption of salvation and isolation. He wants to tell the world. That's what David is saying here. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I want to tell other people what God has done for me. I want to extol the creator's name. He is a great God, what he has done to me. And all of this is to honor God for those days in which David made one dumb decision after another. Continuing on, verse 4. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. How do you like that? Now, you would have read that psalm, I'm sure, before in your life, and it probably didn't resonate with you about what kind of shame, David? How about acting like a madman and having saliva come down my beard and scratching at a door? Ooh, yeah, that's pretty bad. And yet I knew that God forgave me for that. He forgave me, and I knew that he forgave me. And this is the lesson for you today, that God is speaking to us about that. Their faces are never covered with shame. Here's the thing. You've done dumb things, but you've asked God to forgive you, and it's done. And so don't walk around with this shame. It's done. The Savior has washed you. All right? God has for forgiven and forgotten it. And now the essence is to move on with our lives, as, as our, our brother here has done. Verse 6, this poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. The angel of the Lord, and that again is a, is a reference of Jesus Christ to come. That Jesus Christ will sit around you and protect you and put a hedge around you. And that even though you may some, from time to time want to go outside that hedge and you may make some of these trips, that when you come back to God and say, God, forgive me, he forgives. God, have mercy on me, he pours mercy into your heart. God, give me grace to not do this again, he gives you the grace. And you see this powerful psalm written at a time when he reflects back on, on a series of very dumb decisions. Verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him lack nothing. Here it is. <clears throat> when you give your trust to God, when you put your life into God, when you say, God, direct my steps, when, I, when you say, God, I will be all you want me to be, and tell me what you don't want me to be, when you do that, God will give you everything you need not what you want. Big difference, folks. 
You got a long list of wants. God's not interested in your wants. He's interested in your needs. He knows your needs. And so you see this. He will give it to him. And here's David who has gone through these, these events in his life that are so profound and, and, and it's, it's so uh, incredible for us to go back and read it. So the lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. How do you like that? The people, the lions, who probably could take care of themselves, could get anything that they wanted, they grow weak in their own physical strength, but those who trust in the Lord will not. Meaning when you put your trust in God, when you pledge yourself to God and you say, God, you direct my steps, you'll never grow weak. He will be there. That's the essence of this psalm, going back uh, under the template of, of uh, Samuel 21. Well, what a powerful backstage this is. And then he goes on and, and, and talks more. Verse 11, come my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of, your, of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies. You could put this up on your refrigerator. If you want to have a life that's worthy, you want to have a life in remembrance of God, you want to have people say about you that there is one of God's men, this is the way to live your life. And he's saying it right there. This is how to live your life. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. This is so powerful to me as we see David outlining this, this, this message, understanding how significant it is. That's the essence of, of the Christian life. That's the essence of the Christian life. The grace of God not only saves, keeps, and provides, but it instructs us as well. That's the grace of God. Watch your tongue. Watch the evil. Keep yourself from evil. Do good. All of this is being poured into your life through the grace of God. Uh, and, and it's amazing when you see this and, and understand this. And, and then he talks even further in verses 12 through 15 as he's giving us specific uh, advice here. First, uh, those of you who desire uh, to have good days, good many days, to live a long life. Keep your tongue from evil. Keep your lips from speaking uh, lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. There it is. God is against the evildoers. You may not see it all at once. But eventually, at the end of the tale, God is against the evildoers. And God is saying, David is telling us right now, that this is how God wants us to live our lives. To be at peace with men. Not to be at war with men. To speak well. Not to spread evil. Not to slander. Not to send malice. Not to do anything that would continue to inflame an already evil world. But to be the peacemakers. Uh, and there's a great uh, passage I want you to read, 1 Peter chapter 3, that ties this in. 1 Peter 
chapter 3. Verse 8. This is Peter instructing the flock. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Boy, living in the kind of day and age that we live in now, this is a hard thing. This is a hard thing because it's so easy for people who may not agree with you politically or may not agree with you theologically to say some very bad things about you and to inflame you. And I'm preaching to myself right now. And I ask God to give me the grace not to, re- not to return insult with insult. It's a hard thing, right? It's a hard thing when somebody hurls an insult at you, especially when God gave you a tongue that's very gifted at carving back. Instead, God says, hold back, hold off, refrain, sit tight, have patience. Oh, God, give me the grace. I'm making this prayer right now to God. Help me, God. I can't do this. This is a hard thing, and I know I'm not alone. This is a hard thing, but this is how God wants us to live. This is how he wants. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because of this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing for, and now he's going to cite, Peter is now going to cite David's psalm. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to the prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Verse 13. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened, but in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Oh gosh, this is a hard thing. This is a hard thing. And yet David is celebrating God at this moment for what God has done for him and is instructing us on how we are to live. This is how we are to live. This is what separates us from the world. All right, this is what separates us from the world. God has called you to live like this. This is what it is to be righteous. You know, we could sit up here and we'll go through the Ten Commandments and a lot of it's going to go over your head and your eyes are going to glaze over because you're going to say, I don't know. I mean, really, I, I, can't, I can't focus on that. But when I do verses like this, ooh, insult for insult, evil for evil, I know it resonates with you. Because it resonates with me, and God is saying this to you for that very reason. We are not to live like the world. And even though it's hard, and even though I want to reach out and punch somebody, and I know I'm not alone, I ask God to take that away from me. Wash me. 
Take those inclinations away from me. Pour your mercy into my life. Let me see where I need help. Help me to pray for more love. Help me to pray for more mercy. Help me to pray for more patience. And dear God, help me not to make dumb decisions. I don't want to make these dumb decisions. I've spent a lifetime making dumb decisions. And but for the grace of God, he's brought us all here today on a Monday morning where we worship him and we study him. And he's forgiven all those dumb decisions. But from this day forward, we want to stop that. We want to face the cross. We want to look at Jesus Christ. We want to lead a life consistent with what he wants us to do. And that's why this story of mercy and grace and forgiveness for David resonates today with us. That despite all these dumb decisions, despite all these people that unfortunately were wiped out and killed, all these things that he did that were wrong, all the facts that he basically made himself look like a fool even though he was the anointed of God, God forgave every single one of them and would lift him up and make him the greatest king in the history of Israel, second only to Jesus Christ, and put him in the line of Jesus Christ so that when they would trace the lineage of Jesus, it would go through David. That is your God. That's the God you serve. That's the grace that you have. When you leave here today, that's the message you need to give to a lost world. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you for this message. I thank you for this lesson. Lord, I thank you for David. Lord, he resonates so much for us in so many ways as we see these weaknesses in his life, and yet you've forgiven him. Lord, forgive us also for all the weaknesses and dumb mistakes we've made, Lord. Help us to grow stronger. Help us to become more mature. Help us to lead others to you, Lord. And help us to give this message of hope to a world that's lost, this message of grace, this message of mercy to people that need it. Protect our brothers. Be with them this week and bring them back safely on Monday to continue the study of your word. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.